what's your story? This is Success Stories with Kendra Hall, where inspirational people come to tell their story so that you can write your own. Here's Kendra. Today's guest, Michael Clinton, is the former president and publishing director of Hearst Magazines, an avid traveler and photographer and the author of Roar, Roar into the second half of your life. Built on Michael's four decades of experience in the publishing world and the firsthand stories of over 40 inspiring reimagineers, Roar teaches readers how to ditch the traditional ideas of ageism and live fulfilling lives at any age. Michael, welcome to Success. We are so excited to hear your stories. Thank you. It's great to be here with you, Kendra. So happy to be with you. So I do have a question right as we get started. It's a question that I ask a lot of our guests, um, and I'm so excited to talk about the book and, and just get to know more about you. But as someone who has done so much with your life, Michael, what to you is the definition of success? You know, the definition of success to me is being able to maximize every single minute in being productive. And when I say productive, that also means downtime and refresh time, you know, in being able to take a big, deep breath and however it works for you. But, you know, I say life should be full gallop. So um, I like creating this thing called the uh, life layering, which you might have read about in the book, which is uh, we'll talk a little bit about. But, you know, I think when you do that, you, you build this very rich and dynamic life. And to me, success is not just about business. It's about a holistic view of your life. Yeah. And I, I loved the concept of life layering. So I'm so glad that, that you put that in there. And I, I do, even, even as you're saying that, I'm taking notes that the value of, of downtime and, and the value of um, refreshing is something that I personally struggle with. I know a lot of our listeners, you know, they, they subscribe to success, they're achievers, that's their mindset. Um, and it's something that, that I struggle with, that they struggle with. So is there any, even just like as we get started, what, what have you found in your life that that has made that easier? Did you ever struggle with the idea of, of downtime? Well, first of all, um, my definition of downtime might make you laugh a little because <laughs> for me, it's going out and running a six mile loop around Central Park. Mm -hmm. uh, that's kind of my downtime. <laughs> I call it moving meditation. So we all have our things, but I'm going to throw out a crazy concept, which I love to tell people. Take 24 hours, just start with 24 hours, no digital anything. No phones, no music, no Netflix, no YouTube, no texting, no anything for 24 hours. Can you do it? I don't Most know. Most people start shaking. Yeah, I don't know the <laughs> last time I did that. Yeah, and to me, that is, you know, an ultimate downtime moments because you have to think, you have to talk to people, you have to take a walk in the park, you have to go visit, you know, your your friends. And, you know, those kinds of things make you really sort of decompress a bit. And mm. so try it. I mean, it's really a challenge for people, but try it. Yeah, I can't. I mean, I can't even. Wait, so how do you tell? Do you not tell time during that 24 hours? You know, there's an old fashioned thing called a wristwatch. I know. But even <laughs> even. No, it can't be an Apple watch. I it know. has to be an old fashioned dial. That's, right. That's it. I'm like, I'm going to have to carry around the clock yeah, from yeah. my exactly. living room with me. Or a me. sundial. You get a <laughs> sundial, Kendra. Um, no, I know. It's a crazy concept. But once upon a time, believe it or not, we used to do it, right? Not yeah. that long ago. Well, and I do. I think about that. Even as I was as I was saying that, I'm like, yeah, Apple has infiltrated my my time, too. Like, yeah. I can't I can't get a, away from the, right. the interesting. OK, well, that yeah. that's a good concept. We'll get more into that. But I really selfishly as I'm like looking at your bio and and being in Manhattan where we're neighbors, we discovered this, like your history in publishing is just, I just like am drooling over it. Can you tell me, Michael, and, and so maybe this is just for me, but how did you, how did you get into publishing? Like, you, you know, I was the uh, publisher of my university newspaper. 
Really? And at the University of Pittsburgh. And I said, I want to be in publishing. Why? It kind of sparked me. No one in the entire family had ever been in that business. I came to New York with $60 in my pocket and a couch to sleep on for a couple of months. And, you know, like many people, I kind of scratched my way in. Um, it took me about a year or so to get my first publishing job. It was a reporter for a business to business publication. And, you know, I loved it from the minute that I got involved. And I literally started from the ground up. I mean, boots up. And, you know, some of it was luck, some of it was skill, some of it was talent, some of it was timing. Mm -hmm. You put it all in the big cooker. Mm-hmm. And but I think there was something that I did, which I've been, you know, people ask me this question. I stuck with it. Mm-hmm. You know, there were ups and there were downs, but I spent, you know, an entire career loving it and never really wanting to leave it. And so you might have zigs and zags, but if you love a profession, love a career, you take the ups and you take the, and you take the downs. Yeah. Do you remember? Do you remember one of the? I, I like how you said there some of the moments where. It was, some was luck, some was skill, some was talent. Do you remember one of your luck stories? Like what was, what was one of those moments where, where you think it was probably luck on your side? Well, it, probably um, when I was at uh, Fairchild Publications, I was uh, you know in the B2B business and I got a call from the then publisher of GQ to ask me if I would come and interview with him. And I did... And I got a job as as one of their advertising managers. And he then left six months later and a new guy came in and he and I just connected and he made me the advertising director. And then two, three years later, when he was promoted, he said, Michael should be the publisher of GQ. So there I was, 34 years old, becoming one of the youngest publishers in the industry. And a lot of it was really sort of the luck of my timing But also, you know, everything around success is performance, right? So you've got to also have the stuff. But I had a great mentor who kind of, you know, brought me along and said, he's the guy. And so the importance of mentors and mentoring would be a good example. Yeah. And then I spent seven years as the publisher of GQ before I went on to a corporate role in the company. I I think that I had a, an old, an old friend of mine, an old wise friend, and he once said, well, luck favors the prepared. And, you know, and I think about that, like, sure, there was, there was, there was luck there, but it's not like you were just some kid off the street that didn't have that. So you mentioned there, the importance of mentoring, um, and having a mentor. This is a question that comes up a lot in the, and don't worry, we are going to talk all about the book, but I just, all these things that are coming up, yeah. I want to ask you these questions. Please. I'm sitting with an icon here. Um, what we get this question a lot. How do I find a mentor? How do I know if I have a mentor? What does a mentor look like? And, and I have my thoughts on like what about mentorship, but I'd love to hear from you. Like how, if someone were to say to you, how do I find a mentor? Or you get that email that says, will you be my mentor? Which I feel like is kind of a weird. So tell me your thoughts on mentoring. How do you get one? What does that look like? Well, it's a great question. First of all, I think you adopt your mentor. You find the person in the company or in the organization that you know is you know smart and driven and successful and is not a narcissist, but is also concerned about their people. And you kind of, you know, adopt that person and hopefully they adopt you back. Mm. And, you know, that's important. I've had, you know, three really amazing mentors in my professional life. I like to sort of say that they were mentors in early stage, mid stage and late stage, Mm -hmm. you know, in a career because you have a different need, you know, when you're in mid career versus early career. And the other thing is having been in senior management for so long You know, I like to identify talent. They don't even necessarily know that I'm looking at them through a certain lens. And then I end up becoming their mentor in a very sort of 
organic way. Mm-hmm. And I've mentored many, many individuals who've gone on to very senior roles in the in the magazine industry. And I take great pride, great pride in that. So I think it works two ways. Yeah, yeah. I, I think back to some of my mentors and I remember like seeing them and, and seeing the work that they'd done and knowing that they were that that there was something really incredible there. And, and I remember there were moments where I would just, I would go up and just make myself known. And like, I really appreciate your, your work. And then maybe there was a reason to follow up for some reason or whatever it was, but it was never a, hi, will, will you be my, will you be my mentor? You know, like it wasn't a, um, and then always whenever there was a piece of advice that came my way. Even I had adopted them. They hadn't adopted me yet. Um, But a piece of advice came my way or, or a recommendation. And I followed that thing through all the way and then always made sure to report back like, Oh, thank you so much. This is you, you mentioned this. I did this. I really appreciate it. And those were what turned into, you know, some really long term. Yeah, I think there are some life lessons in mentoring, and I think there's some real nuts and bolts work performance things. I'll tell you one piece of it's a great piece of advice that I give everybody. When I was this young publisher of GQ, there was this very senior executive who said to me early on, just remember, Michael, you're sitting in a seat that is a rented seat. Mm. That that is not you're the publisher of GQ, but that's not who you are. When Giorgio Armani invites you to his house for dinner, it's because you sit in that seat. It's not because you, Michael. And I remember that because so many people who work in C-suite jobs or, you know, even CEOs get wrapped up in the seat that they're in. And that's not necessarily who they are or shouldn't be who they are. They should enjoy the seat and work hard in the seat and enjoy the benefits of the seat. But don't wrap your identity up in that seat because that seat's going to go away someday. And then who are you? Right. Really, really big issue. I had never thought of that. So then would you in that scenario, you know, you have the seat, you get invited to Giorgio Armani's home for dinner. Do you have in your mind, like, I want Giorgio to know who Michael is like not just the publisher of GQ, but who who I am as a person. Is that how you approach that, or were you just well, like, "Hey, I'm yeah. here"? No, not really. I mean, I think sometimes that happens organically. Yep. But but I think when you're there, you're there in a professional capacity. And so, you know, when I think about meeting everyone, you know, meeting U.S. presidents from George Bush to Barack Obama, meeting major movie stars, you know, sitting with Cary Grant. Um, some of you, um, some of your listeners may not know who that is, but that's another story. <laughs> How about George Clooney? Okay. Yeah, there we go. Okay. Uh, okay. Or Brad Pitt. <laughs> but, um, you know, wh- ultimately you are representing the seat that you sit in. So you have to, you know, have mm-hmm. that professional piece. Sometimes you hit it off and you become friends. I've become friendly with a number of household name people, but it's because we hit it off as people and we stay in touch and stuff. But, um, yeah, yeah. but I, I didn't, I didn't necessarily pursued that they needed to know who I was, you know, as a person, it might, you know, per se. Yeah. You want to uphold the, uphold the seat and know that it was. So, so I do want to go back to that because this is what this is. It's a big part of the book that you've written roar. Um, and you know, that there is so much that things change, right? We move from one seat to another till eventually we're, we're not in the seats anymore. We're, we're doing something else. So I, and, and it's interesting because this has been on my mind recently. I recently turned 40 and you know, some people are like, oh my goodness, she's so old. Some people are like, oh my gosh, she's just a spring chicken, whatever. But this is who I am and this is where I am. And I had this realization, you know what? I think I've always thought that I was just going to work forever, right? Like I was just gonna, there is no, I don't have a retirement plan. I'm going to work until, which, which fine. But I think I should start considering like what, what does what does this look like 10 years from now? What does it look like 15 years from now? And not in a bad way, but to be prepared for that second half and, and all of a sudden realizing like, wait a minute, that's 
It's a little bit closer than I thought it was, right? It's definitely closer because I still feel 28, you know, but it's, I'm not 28. So, so that's right. I, 28 is my age. We all, I've been talking, we've been talking about this among my friends and everybody names right. the age that they still are. Are you still 28, Michael? Yes. In my head, I'm 28, oh. but you know, but you know what I love to say is, um, first of all, you hit right to the core heart of the message of the book, Kendra. And here's the thing. If you're 40 today and you're healthy, you're going to probably live another 50 years and 50 years. You're going to have potentially multiple careers, multiple lifestyles, multiple loves. And today, you know, women are having children at 50. People are going back to school in their 60s. Mm -hmm. People are falling in love and getting remarried in their 80s. And so, you know, it's a long arc. So I think one of the things that I like to say is the old structure is falling apart. Mm -hmm. What you were supposed to do when you were 50 and 60 are irrelevant today. They're obsolete because that whole, what our parents and our grandparents did is irrelevant because of life longevity that we're, we're experiencing. Mm -hmm. So you have to reimagine who you want to be and you can have a 30 year career, a first career, and then have a second career for another 20 years Isn't that or I... even a third career. So, you know, the 40 people I talked to in the book, all of them did a 180 degree pivot in their life. Yeah. And so uh, it's really great inspiration, great inspirational stories. Is there a moment when you realize like this is the second half? Did you have that moment? Well, I, I mean, even this, though you're 28, yeah. even though you're 28. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I hate to say this, Kendra, but it was when I was 40. Oh, God. <laughs> so here's what I realized when I was 40. This is becoming a therapy was, session right now. It's a it's, therapy right, exactly. session. Yeah. This is the therapy session. <laughs> um, I realized that all I was doing was working, work, 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 work. And I was like, I am such a loser because if I look at my life, all I'm doing is working. So I was on a business trip and I was on an airplane home and I said, okay, I'm going to do something really exciting. So I picked three things. I said, I'm going to take a flying lesson. I'm going to go to a race car driving school and I'm going to go climb Mount Kilimanjaro in Africa. This is going to happen over the next year. I'm going to be, you know, adventurous. So I took the flying lesson and I ended up becoming a pilot. I went to Kilimanjaro and hiked to the top, which was set me off on a course of adventure. And after that first year, I came back and I said, you know what? My 40s are going to be my adventure years. And I ran all over the world. I did crazy hikes in Nepal and Patagonia. And I, you know, as I said, I became a pilot. And I said, my 40s are going to be my adventure years. And I'll keep working and all that stuff. That was what I call the first layer of life layering. I put this whole adventure layer on mm. and that was kind of fun stuff. And then I was, as I was approaching 50, I had done, you know, thousands of photographs and a friend of mine who's an artist, she said, let's do a pop-up show of your photographs. I'm like, really? If I'm not, you know, I'm not that good. I'm sweating, you know, as I'm thinking about this now. And we had a pop-up show, which was for a, uh, a benefit for a board I was on. And I sold a bunch of photography and raised a lot of money. And I said, well, maybe there's something to this photography thing. So I decided my 50s were going to come my creative years on top of my adventure years, on top of my work life, blah, blah. <laughs> and um, so, yeah, I think it all started when I was around 40. <laughs> See, but you didn't do it in the midst of a pandemic, too. I feel like it was this like big, like, right? Good and, point. Good right? Point. Like now it was it was much more um, abrupt and forced. And now, actually, I do feel like and I'm sure a lot of people are listening to this and maybe you've experienced this, too. But it's that, you know, we've done pandemic, pandemic, pandemic for so long. There's been such a shift in the way that we operate and the way that we do things. And I don't know about you. I learned a lot. I learned a lot about myself. I learned a lot about what was working, what was broken, what I could change. And now, you know, like I walked around all over town today and didn't have to have a mask on. And it was like, okay. And, and all of a sudden, like the, I'm, I'm, I have these flights coming up and I've got all the conference calls and I'm done. I'm feeling like I'm moving back into what was, and I'm not, I don't feel ready to that I've fully leaned into this like 
new identity that was maybe emerging that next that next layer. I feel like I'm getting sucked back down to the first layer. Um, so, I, and I know we jumped ahead a little bit. So let's let's talk about this in terms of the in terms of the book. So life layering is part of the strategy. I'm looking it up here because Roar we have like it, which is brilliant, right? Four parts. R is reimagining. We have O is owning. I think that's my favorite. Act is the A and then reassess. So act is, that's where life layering shows up. So where do we, what do you do? What do you recommend to people who are listening to this layering concept or read it in the book and are like, I don't think I'm going to be able to do that. How can I layer? Because in a way it does sound like more. Like how I'm going to do all the things that I'm doing right now, plus climb Kilimanjaro, which I think if yeah. I were doing nothing, I wouldn't climb Kilimanjaro, but that's <laughs> how we're different, Michael. What would you yeah. say to that? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great question. I think because we live in a time where we're distracted by so many things, right? And we are, to use a, to use a word, multitasking on all fronts, where our relationship, personal relationship, our kids, if we have kids, our families, our work are all the things that we do. And so what I like to say is start with one thing, mm -hmm. one thing that you've been putting on the back burner that you know is in your heart and in your soul. So I'll give you an example of a woman who I interviewed who was a busy mother raising kids, juggling with her husband, working in sales executive jobs, you know, doing all the things to make money, to put the kids through school, all the above. And she was always in her heart, wanted to be a writer. Mm. And she finally in her 50s said, darn it, I'm going to sit down and start doing this. She picked the one thing that was in her heart. And it took her a few years. She wrote a book. She had 170 rejections. <laughs> she said, I kept an Excel sheet. She finally sold her first novel called The First Husband which was, you know, a really sort of fun book. Her name is McGarvey Black. Yeah. And the book was a hit. You know, it was a really big hit in the UK for some reason. You know, women love this book. And she's now written four books and she's got two more books to write. And this became her layer. And mm -hmm. she's now in her early 60s, but she focused on that one thing. So what is the, start with one thing that you're passionate about and just chase it and pursue it and stick with it. Too many people yeah. give things up too quickly, you know, stick with it and just, you know, love it and nurture it and expand it. And I love it'll that. Take you so it'll take you somewhere. Well, and I even think, I feel like I had a whisper of one of those things that keeps coming up. I was a Spanish major in college. And then of course I didn't use it because I just, that wasn't the way my life went. And just recently it's come up every once in a while and I'll think, gosh, I really, I love that I, new Spanish. And I love when I can pick up on conversations and understand it. And I was just at a birthday party the other night where the the parents of the, I took my daughter and they, they all speak Spanish. And I was like picking, and then we watched in the Heights and I understood some of the lyrics and I was like, wait. And I, so, so even for me, I had the thought this morning, I thought, you know what, maybe I should just go to a Spanish class again or something to practice. And so, so maybe it doesn't have to be, oh, I'm going to write four novels even, right. right? It could just be that, wait, there's this thing I used to really love and I was good at and I kind of miss it and I want to add this layer back in. So would that count? Absolutely. Yes. I think it's a great example. And, you know, just continuing to master a language and maybe you'll read a book in Spanish yeah. and maybe you'll take a family trip to Mexico or Spain and you'll use it. And yeah, absolutely. It dimensionalizes, you know, who you are. And so I, that's a great example, actually. Great. And maybe I will learn how to fly the plane to Mexico. <laughs> Should I? Do I, have to, do I have to do that too? So let's, let's take a few steps back. We were right there in ACT, but that's actually the third part of this kind of like four part process. The first one the, of the ROAR method is reimagining. So when you, and this is something that is really important to me, you say in there is um, taking control of the narrative. And and you don't know this, Michael, but I have a new book coming out in January called, ah. I know, so it's called Choose Your Story, Change Your Life. And it is all about 
managing our internal storytelling that's happening all the time. So, so, but you, you take this approach from a different angle, but I wanted to hear from you, like, what does this concept of taking control of the narrative and, and reimagining things, what does that look like in, in your terms? Well, first of all, congratulations on the book. Very Thank exciting. You. I'll look forward to reading it. You know, I think that especially in the second half of life, you know, we live in a culture that is ageist and there is a lot of ageism that happens all around us. And a lot of that then translates into self-imposed ageism. Mm. And so people say, well, I'm too old to do this or I can't do that. And I always say, forget about age appropriate and focus on person appropriate, mm. you know, because you can do anything at any time and don't focus on the word retire, which is a toxic word. Focus on the word rewire. You know, what are you going to do next? And I just did a, um, had a comment on this earlier today in another conversation that when someone leaves their main career, all the structure kind of goes away in their day to day life. And so, you know, creating what I call the portfolio life, where you create your own, you're restructuring yourself so that you're picking two or three things that you're going to build into your life that's going to give you the discipline that you you need. It might be studying Spanish, mm-hmm. you know, one hour a day. It might be um, going to work at a nonprofit, you know, a few hours a week, but rebuild the structure to re- reimagine your, your own self. And so you have to get all the old isms out of your brain in terms of when you're reimagining who you want to be and recapture some of your younger self, you know, focus on the things that really are important to you and build that narrative for yourself and the people around you. And, you know, you will ultimately become that person as, as you do that. We, we have a lot of barriers that we put on ourselves that need to be shed, especially as we're, you know, over, over 50. And by the way, I like to say that 50 is not the new 40. 50 is the new 50. <laughs> and 60 is the new 60. Right. So let's just embrace it and, you know, do what we want to do. When I turned 60, you'll pardon the expression in my own mind because I'm 28. I know. I went to Antarctica and ran a marathon. And, you know, it was my seventh continent of running all seven continents. And I'm like, you know what? Somebody might have said, this guy is going to do that at 60. And I'm like, in my head, I'm not 60. I'm that 60 is the new 60. That's right. what we do. Right. That's what we do, people. Oh my gosh. I And you're right. You're right. Like I think about the big and small ways that we impose ageism on ourselves, right? right. Like, oh, I can't. I mean, women do this a lot. I don't know if this is as much a, a man's problem, but oh, I can't wear that. I'm right. I'm 40. Right. Yeah. We were just talking about our, our friend Madonna and man, that woman doesn't she doesn't even, she's Madonna. She's not yeah. any age, right? Like right. this seems to be a, a theme. This is a theme that comes up. You were talking about it in, in the seat where we're talking about it here in this idea of identity. I kept feeling that theme coming up and, um, and really how essentially we have to be active creators of that identity and, and shedding, shedding the things. And then what you said there with this reimagined concept is actively adding in new identities. I think about athletes, like this would be, this would be a whole thing. You know, when all athletes are just told when to wake up, what to eat, where to go, how much to work out. And then their career is done and it it feels like a failure or at least a flailing, right? Of now, who am I? What am I? This concept, no matter what their age, you know, professionally athletes age out or retire much earlier. They're not 60 years old. Um, This concept of rewiring is fascinating in that way. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, you know, what I learned in talking to all these people, Kendra, is It takes a year at least to reimagine, to think about where you want to go. You know, some sometimes it takes the year to pivot in your career. Sometimes it takes a year to make you realize that you're not in the right relationship anymore. Sometimes it takes you a year to say, you know, I need to leave the city I'm living in or the town I'm living in. 
because, you know, you want to have it thought through. So I like to say, think about it, reflect on it, write it down, put it in writing, you know, go back to it. Um, and then, you know, build yourself to that particular point. And it is, a, it's a really interesting process to hear how a lot of people went through it, My, you know, in the book. Yeah. 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 Well, there's, I mean, obviously people get this book. I do. I let out a sigh of relief though, and realized afterwards that they're probably going to have to edit it because it was like audible feels so good to know that I have a year, right? Because I turned 40 in February. This is June. I'm like, all right, okay. I have some time because I do feel like we put the pressure on ourselves to know everything right now. As soon as we have a thought that we're supposed to know and you're saying, no, give yourself the year to rewire. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And also going back to the earlier point, about, uh, and I know this is something I've heard from other 40 year olds too, <laughs> is that, you know, if you've got 50 more years ahead of you, you have a lot of living to do and a lot of experiences to have, you know, assuming everyone's healthy and in, in well being space. Um, and so it doesn't all have to be done today. And, you know, I think that that's um, a relief because I think younger generations and even when you go into people in the early 20s, you know, the pressure on these, you know, on younger people or kids who are applying to colleges now. I mean, just the pressures that go on that they put on themselves. And um, so, yeah, I mean, it will be it's going to be a different kind of age of longevity than we've had in the past. I mean, I'm thinking about this and and taking some of these concepts and sharing them with my children. I was at the fifth grade graduation party of the elementary school last night, and there were kids talking about where they're going to college. Oh, I'm like, no. you yeah. you just found out where you're going to middle school, kid. Like, yeah. chill out. Yeah. Like, it, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so that's reimagine. Let's talk now because I love I love this one own. And you give lots of different areas of where we need to own it. So owning is a big part of this second life. Tell us about that. Yeah, well, it's broken up into multiple, multiple parts. It's also one of my favorite parts of the book, because it's a very practical part of the book. First of all, you know, you have to own where you came from, and what, what you're working with. And, you know, one of the things while I have this really, you know, exciting New York City life that I created and every day I wake up and say, wow, how did I get here? (laughs) Um, You may recall from the book that I came from a very poor working class family. So, you know, I came with sort of no advantages. Um, And so first one in the family history to go to college, you know, all the all the story, a great, you know, many, many examples of that in, in America. We have that great possibility, mm-hmm. um, w- which is terrific. But you, you have to know from whence you came before you can, you know, completely have an authentic view of yourself. So that's mm-hmm. kind of first phase one. Mm-hmm. The other thing is, as people get older, especially guys, they're clueless about their health, mm-hmm. their, you know, basic health stats, blood pressures, having colonoscopies, you know, women, obviously having, making sure that they're getting the right tests and exams as you, as, as we get, as we Mm -hmm. live longer. And so, you know, having firm health statistics, having good, you know, financial well-being as well as you can, and where does it stand and where do you stand and where do you want to go? And what's the number that you want to own that you want to have as, you know, your, your life arc of both earnings and, and financial well-being and owning your goals you know, owning the number, your number and your goals, which is another piece that people forget. And then finally, and when you're, this is really more for people who are more in their 60s. The book is really for people 40 to 60, but I would say slightly older and that you've got to own own the number that someday you're going to leave planet Earth. Mm-hmm. And, you know, are you prepared for it? I mean, mm-hmm. have, you had the, have you had the honest conversation with your partner about, you know, these are my wishes. This is where we are, you know, as a family in our financial well-being. You make sure everybody's aware of it. And, you know, a lot of us like to ignore a lot of these basic things because, you know, let's face it, they're tough conversations and you've got to face some real hardcore realities when you have them. But you can't, 
reimagine unless you own all your collective stuff. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I love that. I love that chapter and the the wisdom that a lot of people passed on who I interviewed. I love that. Own your numbers. I, yeah. I I do think it is just such a straightforward way so that you don't get hit over the head. Cause the, I mean, the other alternative is being hit over the head with your numbers, yeah, right. right? Like yeah. I, I know even with my parents having a, having a conversation, this would have been probably April, 2020. Uh, my parents are, my dad's about to turn 70. My mom's a few years behind him. And my mother's saying, I'm completely discombobulated because three months ago, 60 was the new 40 and now (laughs) I'm suddenly at risk. Like I'm part of the elderly population for this, like, and her, like that, you know, you talk about identity, like it's one thing to, it's one thing to say, you know, oh, well I'm, but there's realities to it too. Like there's own your number, know what this means going forward. And, um, I, I thought that was just, it was such an important point to make yeah. um, in order to go forward. Now, there was one piece that I was hoping you would share here when you were talking about owning and and the way I read it, of course, is like owning your story. And because we can't, we can't, and in particular, owning your regrets, um, because you can't go back and change things. Like there, there is no going back. We can only go forward. Um, but what would you say to someone who who really is struggling to, or even one of the stories from the book, someone who's struggling to own their regrets? Yeah. Well, I think the good news is by the time you're 40, 45, you've lived a life, you've lived an adult life, you've made some good decisions, some bad decisions, you've made some mistakes, you've turned left instead of turning right, and vice versa. And, you know, you have to sort of take a deep breath and be able to forgive yourself that those things um, were decisions you made with the circumstances that you had. And now you have to move forward. And, you know, so part of it is learning how to let go of all of the things that you've been carrying as your baggage. It's easier said than done, but it's something that we all have to do individually So that's one part of it. The other part of it, which is on a sort of lighter note, we all know those 40-year-olds who are still lamenting the uh, college sweetheart who dumped them. It's like, okay, you got to move on. You know, you know, he he's he did what he did. He was an idiot because you're the best person in the world. But, you know, you got to move on. And so, you know, stuff like that, which is superfluous stuff, we have to let go. That's easier to do than maybe, you know, a a mistake that we made, a, a bad career choice, a career choice or something. But I think it really gets down to you said it. You know, you can only propel forward. You, you can't, you know, focus on what was. You can only, today is day one of moving forward. And so view that day one is from this point on, I'm going to do X, Y, or Z. Mm-hmm. And I think that becomes empowering. It's very empowering. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so, well, we talked about act and and life layering um, and, the, and there's more to that, but I want to talk about... Uh, the act then of reassessing um, as the kind of the final R and it's reassessing relationships. It's reassess. I mean, it's kind of reassessing. So, so how is, why is this such an important part of it? Is it, is it, I mean, we could be think of, maybe we are dwelling too much. Is that like, what, what, tell me about reassess. So you made a great point about the last year and how we all went through this existential moment. And you'll notice how organically you kind of stuck with your pod or your tribe or the key people. And all of a sudden, all the most important people in your life kind of gelled with you. Mm. And all these other people who are kind of tangential you may not have been in touch with that often. And that's like a real telling sign. Mm. And I think, you know, I come from the publishing world. So editing is really an important thing. (laughs) So I like to say you have to edit people too. 
every yeah. now and then. Yeah. You know, that that person who you knew when you were in your 20s who may no longer be a positive force in your life. Why is that person still in your life? Um, you know, or if you have a really difficult uh relationship with your sister or your brother or pick a family member um why how do you how do you ring fence that in a certain kind of way mm -hmm. and so it's reassessing sort of who's on team you y-o-u and who are the people who lift you who support you who reinforce you and how do you you move those people out i mean we've all had to make painful decisions about ending a relationship a friendship you know, all of those things. But I think it's, it's critical that you do that. You may have a friend for life and that's great, but you have to reassess who is really, you know, helping you move, move forward. So that reassessment process on the personal level, I think is really, really important. Um, so let's start there. Yeah. Then you have to reassess your, your work environment and, you know, getting rid of the, you know, are you in the right environment, the right company, doing the right thing, making sure you're attaching yourself to the right people and then reassessing your community at large? You know, one of the great um, things that I just went through is, believe it or not, in my 60s, I went back to school and did a master's degree at Columbia University. Twelve courses, Kendra. Nice. All, I had to learn how to be a student all over again. It was First of all, taking a test, like, why do I have to take a test? <laughs> but, <laughs> I can see that. I, yeah. It, it, yeah, it yeah. was all about uh, nonprofit philanthropy, the, mm. the masters. And it really, you learn a lot about the importance of giving back and the importance of service and community and broadly defined and however you want to express it, because we're all responsible for each other in one way or another. Mm -hmm. So I think it's really those those elements that sort of all come together in a sort of a, re a reassessment of where you are. And then as you move into your next reimagined space, mm -hmm. you need all of those people around you that you've reassessed to lift you to get you there. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Because. Yeah. Yeah. I, I I was actually having this this very thought. See, we were meant to have this. I've told you it's a therapy <laughs> session. I was having yeah. this very thought that there really are. I feel like there are three kinds of people in life. There are the the, the neutrals, like there are the people that you you know you 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 like you you know whatever. They're 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 the people there and and they're neutral. There's no positive or negative. Then there right. are the people who really do. Like when you go on, I have this girlfriend that we, we go, we take many loops around Central Park together and we'll just walk and talk for, for two hours, 10 miles. Um, it's not, we're not running. It, this is not, we tell our husbands that we're, we're going for a run, but we're just That's walking okay. in circles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, but, but I finish those walks and I just feel, I feel stronger. I feel lighter. I feel, I have new ideas. I have new way of seeing, like, I just feel now, I have other friends that like, I love them, but it, it's just, again, they're, they're neutral. And then are, they're the ones that just, for whatever reason that they, they just bring you up. And then on the other side of it, you have the detractors, the negatives that right. whatever it is, they, they, you get, you're done. You finish a conversation. You're like, Oh, I feel worse. Like I, I feel tired or I feel bad about myself or here's, but here's the thing. So you reassess these relationships. It's easier said than done, Michael. I'm yeah. going to be a devil's advocate here. So yeah. how do you end in this age? I was talking to one of my friends who's in her 30s. This is a third. So let's pick on the 30-year-olds for a bit here. Totally different phase of life, right? Right? Just kidding. Um, so my 30-year-old friend who is having some re reassessments, I suppose you could say, of her relationships and and recognizing there were people she needed to let go and was struggling with, okay, well now I need to set them down and be completely authentic and honest with them and tell them that I'm letting them go. And, and just the thought of that act was keeping her from doing it because it seems so. And I'm like, I don't think you got to do that. I don't think you need to have a whole long. So how do we do this? When we make the assessment, we find the people that are bringing us down that we got to let go of. Do you have to have a, do you have to take them out to coffee? Do you have to, or can you just kind of let them go? How do you do it, Michael? Yeah. You know, 
I, I believe in honest, straightforward conversations. So, you know, as hard as that is, the worst thing you can do is just ghost somebody. Right. Uh, like, yeah, you know, yeah. all of a sudden, like you, you, somebody just drops you and you never hear from them again or vice versa. I mean, I think that's horrible. That's, True. you know, so, so inauthentic. Somebody deserves something to hear something. And I think that it depends on the individual you're talking to. Some people, you can smack them right between the eyes, you yep. know, and they'll like take it. Other people, you have to be very gentle and, you know, the way you communicate with them. But I think you have to be able to communicate to someone why something isn't working for you. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. by the way, I think not just in your personal life, but it, your work life too. Right. And, right. you know, you have to have those, those discussions because I think it's, it's just important for you to, to, for you to move forward. And I think, you know, it's interesting people who, as you, as you get older, people are less tolerant for a lot of that stuff around them that is, you know, the things that we're talking about, the detractors, because mm -hmm. you do, I, I was with a 52 year old last night, a friend of mine, a woman, she said, wow, I'm like really beginning to get the sense that time is so important and how we use our time and the people we spend it with. And I said, yes. And that only amplifies itself as you, you get into your fifties and your sixties, et cetera. And so I think that as, as one gains in, in years, they have the, maybe the ability to do it more than, mm -hmm. than, than not. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think here's another thing I think, which is important to have friends of every age. Yeah. So I have friends in their nineties and I yes. have friends in their twenties yep. and, you know, I get different things from all of those various friends, yep. but I think being authentic and honest without, um, being mean is important that I think that's it right there yeah. is. Yep. They, and yeah. you're right. Nobody wants to be ghosted ever. Right. right. Okay. So Michael, this is, there's, there's so much more um, to say, but I, I do have one more question and that is about you. We've been talking about identity and, and you know, like what is this? And you really make it sound easy. Like there has never been a glitch or a blip or a, you know, like you've just, you've just sailed through it, which, which I know nobody does. But as I was, as I was reading about you and, and even as you've mentioned here, um, travel is a big part of your life. And clearly for the past several months, 18 months, 16, however long, I don't even, I've lost track of time, uh, in terms of that, but, but travel wasn't, you were, it wasn't a part of life for that time. And so I wondered whether it was then or, or any other time in your career, um, if you did, if this was something you struggled with, this, this shift in identity, this, this roar method and how you came to the other side of it. Well, wow, great, great question. Um, first of all, I think adaptability is a, is a great trait that people need to have because people, I think people who are successful adapt well. So you mm. get a new boss, your company is bought, your company was sold, you know, all of a sudden there's a whole new team. You know, where does that leave you? You have to be adaptable to the new ownership or management and hopefully you, you can thrive and find new opportunities. The same thing with, you know, adaptability. You know, if you talk to people who go through illness or mm. a natural disaster, it's, it's really inspiring the resiliency that people have and the adaptability that people have. I think it's really an undervalued trait, adaptability, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because I think that when you adapt to things, um, you you learn how to th survive and thrive in a different kind of way you know so for me you know while i was always traveling all over the world when covid hit i had come back from ethiopia two days before covid lockdown wow. so talk about timing and luck yeah but um you know i kind of sort of got my head around well this is what it is and so you have to adapt to it. And so I was fortunate because I wrote this book during COVID, right, right, which yeah. was, you know, productive. And the concept was developed before COVID. And I worked on this master's degree at Columbia. So I, I had full days as well as, you know, having my pod and my family and, the, and friends and like we all did. But you sort of 
I asked a 92 year old woman who I know who's an amazing woman. Her name's Pat Schoenfeld. Her husband was Jerry Schoenfeld, who really built what is today the modern Broadway theater. And if you looked up Schoenfeld, I mean, it was an amazing. I know amazing, the name. Yep. yep. Yeah, exactly. Yep. And Pat, who's 92, we're on a board together, the International Center of Photography Board. And I said, Pat, in your lifetime of 92 years, what, what else was COVID like? Like, did you have any other experience in your life that had such a profound impact on all of us? And her answer was one thing, polio. Yeah. And when polio first came you know, about on the scene, she said that kids that she went to school with died of polio. Yeah. Parents were terrified that their kids were going to get polio. Adults got polio, you know, FDR, President Roosevelt got polio as an adult. And she said it was as scary then as this because you didn't know how, you know, they didn't know how you got it. Mm -hmm. And it's the same thing with this virus. You know, you weren't sure if you touched a doorknob, were you getting it, you know, et cetera. So I thought that was really, um, really interesting in terms of, you know, how she adapted to that as a young girl. Um, or a young woman, I guess, at the time. So I think um, I think we we are we adapt to things as humans, and hopefully we do it better than not. I mean, think about people who've gone through war or you know yeah. other kinds of things. I mean, my friend Jack Klieger, who I write about in the book, is the you know the son of Holocaust survivors, and he talks about his parents and you know what they went through and how they survived and came to America and moved to Brooklyn and started a new life, you know, in their 20s and, you know, adapted to a for, you know, a foreign land after the horrendous things that they went through. Mm -hmm. Wow. I mean, the human spirit, you know, can adapt. We just yeah. have to make sure we have the right people around us who are helping us get there. Uh, I just, I have been so looking forward to this conversation. Thank it you. has been such an honor. Congratulations. Tell us when the book will be available. So the book is on pre-order now. The author's website went up today. Hey. So uh, roarbymichaelclinton.com. And for the early pre-orders, there's a, um, there's a, chapter that will be released they can you'll be signed up for a virtual meeting that will happen in september when the book launches on september 7 um so yeah we're um we're getting ready we're excited about the the upcoming launch you know about it you wrote a book and you got another oh, book coming I know. so you know I how it know. is i know how it is the work the work just begins after the book is written <laughs> i know you think the writing it's the hard part and then yeah. you get to do all this exciting stuff Ex so exactly uh, well, thank you so much. I, I am I am so appreciative for all of the wisdom, the perspective. I really do feel like it was the exact conversation I needed at this exact time. Um, and I can't thank wait you. to hear the, the stories that, that you share. It was an absolute pleasure being with you. You're an amazing interviewer. Thank you. Oh. You asked really good questions. Well, and a few of them made me like, I have to think about this some more because that was really an interesting question. So it was a great pleasure to be with you. And thanks so much for your interest in Roar. Well, we'll see you. We'll see you at the coffee shop. Perfect. See you then. <laughs> Cafe. Decaf latte. Yeah, decaf. I know that's probably a good, <laughs> yeah. that's a good idea. Oh, right. Man. Thanks, Kendra. This has been Success Stories with Kendra Hall. If you like what you're hearing, hit subscribe, drop us a review, and tell your friends. If you'd like to hear more shows like this one, go to success.com slash podcasts.